Book Five: The Church of the Merchants, Part Two, of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rhetorical Black Hanging. It is the duty of the clergy not merely to defend large-scale merchants while they live, but to bury them when they die and to place the seal of sanctity upon their careers. Concerning this aspect of bootstrap-lifting, I quote the opinion of an earnest hater of shams, William Makepeace Thackeray. I think the part which pulpits play in the death of kings is the most ghastly of all the ceremonial. The lying eulogies, the blinking of disagreeable truths, the sickening flatteries, the simulated grief, the falsehood and sycophancies, all uttered in the name of heaven in our state churches. These monstrous threnodies, which have been sung from time immemorial over kings and queens, good, bad, wicked, licentious. The state parson must bring out his commonplaces, his apparatus of rhetorical black-hanging. And this, of course, applies not merely to kings of England, but to kings of steel, kings of coal, kings of oil, kings of Wall Street. Leland Stanford, son of a great king of Western Railroads, died, and standing over his coffin, a Methodist clergyman, afterwards bishop, preached a sermon of fulsome flattery, wherein he likened young Leland to the boy Christ. In the year 1904 there passed from his earthly reward in Pennsylvania a United States Senator who had been throughout his lifetime a notorious and unblushing corruptionist. Matthew Stanley Quay was his name, and the New York Nation, having no clerical connections, was free to state the facts about him. He bought the organization, bribed or intimidated the press, got his grip on the public service, including even the courts, imposed his will on Congress and Cabinet, and upon the last three presidents, making the latter provide for the awful of his political machine, which even Pennsylvania could no longer stomach, and all without identifying his name with a single measure of public good, without making a speech or uttering a party watchword, without even pretending to be honest, but solely because, like Judas, he carried the bag and could buy whom he would. Such was the lay opinion, and now for the clerical. It was expressed by a Presbyterian divine, the Reverend Dr. J. S. Ramsey, who stood over the coffin of Matt, and without cracking a smile declared that he had been a statesman who was always on the right side of every moral question. In that same year of 1904 died the high priest of our political corruption, Mark Hanna. He had belonged to no church, but had backed them all, understanding the main thesis of this book as clearly as the writer of it. In his home city of Cleveland, 
the eulogy upon him was pronounced by Bishop Leonard in St. Paul's Episcopal Church, while in the United States Senate the service was performed by the chaplain, the Reverend Edward Everett Hale. This is a name well known in American letters, as in American religious life. It was born by a benevolent old gentleman, a Unitarian and a liberal, who organized lend-a-hand clubs and such-like amiabilities. Do you love this old man? The signs in the streetcars used to ask when I was a boy, and I promptly answered yes, for my mother took the ladies' home journal, and I swallowed the sentimental dishwater set out for me. But when I read the Reverend Edward's funeral oration over the irreverend Mark, I loved neither of them any longer. This whole-souled child of God, cried the Reverend Edward, who believed in success and knew how to succeed by using the infinite powers. You perceive that the chaplain of the Millionaire's Club agrees with this book, that the infinite powers in America are the powers that pray. THE GREAT AMERICAN FRAUD Among the most loathsome products of our native commercial greed is the patent medicine industry, the great American fraud, as its historian has called it. In 1907 this historian wrote, Gullible America will spend this year some seventy-five millions of dollars in the purchase of patent medicines. In consideration of this sum, it will swallow huge quantities of alcohol, an appalling amount of opiates and narcotics, a wide assortment of varied drugs, ranging from powerful and dangerous heart depressants to insidious liver stimulants, and, far in excess of all other ingredients, undiluted fraud, for fraud, exploited by the skillfulest of advertising bunco men, is the basis of the trade. One by one Mr. Adams tells about these medical fakes, habit-forming laxatives, headache powders full of acetanilide, soothing syrups and catarrh cures full of opium and cocaine, cocktails subtly disguised as bitters, sarsaparillas, and tonics. He shows how the fake testimonials are made up and exploited, how the confidential letters, telling the secret troubles of men and women, are collected by tens and hundreds of thousands and advertised and sold, so that the victim, as he begins to lose faith in one fake, finds another at hand, fully informed as to his weakness. He quotes the amazing red clause in the contracts which the patent medicine makers have with thousands of daily and weekly papers, whereby the makers are able to control the press of the country and prevent legislation against the great American fraud. There are a thousand religious papers in America, weekly and monthly, and what is their attitude on this question? 
Mr. Adams tells us, Whether because church-going people are more trusting, and therefore more easily befooled than others, or from some more obscure reason, many of the religious papers fairly reek with patent medicine fakes. He gives us many pages of specific instances. Dr. Smith belongs to the brood of cancer vampires. He is a patron and prop of religious journalism. It is his theory that the easiest prey is to be found among readers of church papers. Moreover, he has learned from his father-in-law, who built a small church out of blood money, to capitalize his own sectarian associations, and when confronted recently with a formal accusation he replied, with an air of injured innocence, that he was a regular attendant at church and could produce an endorsement from his minister. And here is the Church Advocate of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which publishes quack advertisements disguised as editorials. One of them Mr. Adams paraphrases. As Dr. Smith is, on the face of his own statements, a self-branded swindler and rascal, you run no risk in assuming that the Reverend C. H. Forney, D.D., L.L.D., in acting as his journalistic supporter for pay, is just such another as himself. And again, will the editor of the Baptist Watchman of Boston explain by what phenomenon of logic or elasticity of ethics he accepts the lucubrations of Dr. By, of Orrin O'Neill, of Liquazone, of Actina, that marvelous two-ended mechanical appliance which cures deafness at one terminus and blindness at the other, and all with a little oil of mustard? And again, the Christian observer of Louisville replied to a protesting subscriber, suggesting that the Collier articles were written in a spirit of revenge, because Collier's could not get patent medicine advertising. When I asked the Reverend F. Bartlett Converse for his foundation for the charge, he said that one of the typewriters must have written the letter. Doubtless also the same highly responsible typewriter imitated the signature with startling fidelity to Dr. Converse's handwriting. And here is, would you think it possible, our Church of Good Society. It has an organ in Chicago called the Living Church, most dignified and decorous. You have to study quite a while to ascertain what denomination it belongs to. It will not tell you directly, for the Anglican pose is that it is the Church elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and toward one hope she presses, with every grace endued. And this one holy institution was found setting at its peak the black flag of the traitor, 
the Jolly Roger of the modern commercial pirate, caveat emptor, to quote the precise words, The editors and publishers of the Living Church assume no responsibility for the assertions of advertisers. And so it threw open its columns to the claims of America's champion labor baiter, the late C.W. Post, that his grape-nuts would prevent appendicitis, and obviate the need of operations in such cases. And here is the Christian Endeavor World, organ of one of the most powerful non-sectarian religious bodies in the country. Someone wrote complaining of its medical advertising, and the answer was, To the best of our knowledge and belief, we are not publishing any fraudulent or unworthy medical advertising. Trusting that you will be able to understand that we are acting according to our best and sincerest judgment, I remain yours very truly, the Golden Rule Company, George W. Coleman, Business Manager whereupon the historian of The Great American Fraud remarks, Assuming that the business management of the Christian Endeavor world represents normal intelligence, I would like to ask whether it accepts the statement that a pair of magic foot drafts applied to the soles of the feet will cure any and every kind of rheumatism in any part of the body? Further, if the advertising department is genuinely interested in declining fraudulent and unworthy copy, I would call their attention to the ridiculous claims of Dr. Shoup's medicines, which cure almost every disease, to two hair removers, one an Indian secret, the other an accidental discovery both either fakes or dangerous, to the lying claims of Hall's catarrh cure, that it is a positive cure for catarrh in all its stages, to syrup of figs, which is not a fig syrup, but a preparation of senna, to Dr. Kilmer's swamp root, of which the principal medical constituent is alcohol, and finally, to Dr. By's oil cure for cancer, a particularly cruel swindle on unfortunates suffering from an incurable malady. All of these, with other matter, which for the sake of decency I do not care to detail in these columns, appear in recent issues of the Christian Endeavor World. Riches in Glory there came recently to Los Angeles a world-famous evangelist, known as Gypsy Smith. There was a shirtwaist strike at the time, and the girls were starving, and they sent a delegation to this evangelist to ask for help. They told him how they were mistreated, exposed to insults, driven to sell their virtue because their wage would not support life and to their plea he made answer, Get Jesus in your hearts, and these questions will take care of themselves. 
So we see the most important of the many services which the churches perform for the merchants. Taking the revolutionary hope of Jesus for a kingdom of heaven upon earth, and perverting it into a dream of a golden harp in an uncertain future. To appreciate the fullness of this betrayal, take the prayer which Jesus dictated, so simple, direct, and practical. Give us this day our daily bread and put it beside the hymns which the slave congregations are trained to sing. In my neighborhood is a one-roomed building with a plate-glass front, upon which I observe a painter inscribing in red, white, and blue letters the sign, Glory Mission. I approach him, and he drops his work and welcomes me with eager cordiality. Am I living in grace? I answer that I am. I have to shout the good tidings into his ear, as he is very deaf. He presents me with his card, which shows that he bears the title of Reverend, also the sobriquet of Mountain Missionary. I ask him to permit me to examine the hymn book which he uses in his work, and with touching eagerness he presses upon me a well-worn volume bearing the title Waves of Glory. I seat myself and note down a few of the baits it sets out for hungry wage-slaves. Oh, there's a plenty, oh, there's a plenty, there's a plenty in my father's bank above. Riches in glory, riches in glory, royal supply our wants exceed. Feasting, I'm feasting, I'm feasting with my Lord. Beautiful robes, beautiful robes, beautiful robes we then shall wear. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. Yes, I'll meet you in the city of the new Jerusalem. I'll be there, I'll be there. Blessed Canaan land, bright Canaan land, I love to be in Canaan land. O Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, as on the highest mount I stand, I look away across the sea, where mansions are prepared for me. In the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. I stop there, being reminded of Joe Hill, poet of the IWW, who was executed a few years ago in Utah, and who used this tune in his little red book of revolutionary chants. You will eat by and by in the glorious land above the sky. Work and pray, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky when you die. Captivating Ideals In one of the writer's earlier novels, Prince Hagen, the hero is a Nibelung out of Wagner's Rheingold, who leaves his diggings in the bowels of the earth and comes up to look into our superior civilization. The thing that impresses him most is what he calls the immortality idea. The person who got that up was a world genius, he exclaims, 
If you can once get a man to believing in immortality, there is no more left for you to desire. You can take everything he owns, you can skin him alive if it pleases you, and he will bear it all with perfect good humor. And is that merely the spiritual deficiency of a Nibelung, or the effort of a young author to be smart? Would you like to hear that view of the most vital of Christian doctrines set forth in the language of scholarship and culture? Would you like to know how an ecclesiastical authority, equipped with every tool of modern learning, would set about voicing the idea that the function of the teaching of heaven is to chloroform the poor, so that the rich may continue to rob them in security? Here, under my hand, is a volume in the newest dress of scholarship, dated 1912, and written by Professor Georges Chatterton Hill, of the University of Geneva. Its title is, The Sociological Value of Christianity and from cover to cover it is a warning to the rich of the danger they run in giving up their religion and ceasing to support its priests. It explains how the genius of Christianity has succeeded in making the individual suffering, the individual sacrifices, which are indispensable for the welfare of the collectivity, appear as indispensable for the individual welfare. The learned professor makes plain just what he means by individual suffering, individual sacrifices. He means all the horrors of capitalism. And the advantage of Christianity is that it makes you think that by submitting to these horrors, you are profiting your own soul. By making individual salvation depend on the acceptance of suffering, on the voluntary sacrifice of egotistical interests, Christianity adapts the individual to society. And this, as the professor explains, is not an easy thing to do, in a world in which so many people are thinking for themselves. The only means of causing the rationalized individual to consent to the sacrifice is to captivate him with a sufficiently powerful ideal. And the professor shows how beautifully Jesus can be used for this purpose. Jesus, the so-called humanitarian, never ceased to insist on the necessity of suffering, the desirableness of suffering, of that suffering which a weak and sickly humanitarianism would fain suppress if it could. You get this, you blanket stiff, you husky, or wop, or whatever you are, you disinherited of the earth, you proletarians who have only your labor power to sell, you weak and sickly ones who are condemned to elimination. There has come, let us say, a period of overproduction. You have raised too much food, and therefore you are starving. You have woven too much cloth and therefore you are naked. You have finished the world for your masters, and it is time for you to move out of the way. As the sociologist from Geneva phrases it, 
your suppression imposes itself as an imperious necessity. And the function of the Christian religion is to make you enjoy the process by captivating you with a sufficiently powerful ideal. The priest will fill your nostrils with incense, your eyes with candle lights and images, your ears with sweet music and soothing words, and so you will perish without raising a finger. Here, reflects the professor, we see how magnificently the teaching of Jesus applies to all classes of society. Somebody has evidently put up to our Christian sociologist the embarrassing fact that so many of those who survive under the capitalist system are godless scoundrels. But do you think that troubles him? Not for long. Like all religious thinkers, he carries with his scholar's equipment a pair of metaphysical wings, wherewith at any moment he may soar into the Empyrean out of reach of vulgar materialists like you and me. Inequality signifies inequality of capacity, he explains, but the standard whereby we judge this capacity cannot be the standard of the moral law. The laws which govern the biological evolution of man are known, but those which govern his moral nature cannot be known. The moral nature appertains to the absolute, and hence is not subject to the law of inequality. As an exhibition of metaphysical wing power that is almost as wonderful as the flight of Cardinal Newman when confronted with the fact that his divinely guided church had burned men for teaching the Copernican view of the universe, that infallible popes had again and again condemned this heresy ex cathedra, said the eloquent cardinal, Scripture says that the sun moves and the earth is stationary, and science that the earth moves and the sun is comparatively at rest. How can we determine which of these opposite statements is the very truth till we know what motion is? End of Book 5, Part 2